the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're talking about the finances of the Football Association of Ireland. You'll hear its Director of Finance, Eamon Breen, talk about the investment being made in the sport, how it will repay its €29 million Euro debt by the end of 2020, and Dennis O'Brien's contribution to its finances over the years. In the second half of the show, you'll hear Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times talk about Brexit and encouraging exchequer returns for the first 11 months of this year. But we're going to start with our wrap-up of the week, and I'm joined in the studio by Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times. Peter, you're very welcome. Uh, we're going to start with Orla Kylie, the Irish fashion designer who has had a bit of bad luck recently and her business has, has essentially, she's gone out of business. Yeah, people will re- recall earlier this year that the retail side of her fashion business has collapsed effectively. Um, what we, what she had a, we, what she had a few shops, didn't she? She did indeed. She had a few shops, a few in London uh, and she had uh, she had one here and she had her stuff in, in uh, Kilkenny Design and things like that. She was all over the place and synonymous with Irish design, Orla Kylie was. Now she still holds some of the brand but, but the retail aspect is gone. Uh, we learned this week that uh, it was fairly weighed down with debt, 7 million uh, mm. of which unsecured creditors were owed 5 million. So, those unsecured creditors will be left empty-handed, administrators believe. Uh, Orla Kylie and her husband, uh, Dermot Rowan, who was the chief... They're creditors as well, aren't they? They are indeed, and they were owed uh, £1 million. Yeah. Uh, so, it, look, it, it certainly is a sad... Uh, it's a sadder story than we thought it was at the time. It was obviously bad if they had to mm. shut up shop um, when they did, but it, it seems that they were under a lot more pressure than we than we had previously understood. And has Orla Kylie been saying anything this week about it? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I haven't heard. I haven't heard anything from them yet. But uh, at the time, they were quite quiet as well. Uh, you know, Dermot Rowan, who would have been the voice and face of the business, well, more the voice of the business, uh, was quite quiet at that time. Okay. Now, by contrast, uh, Greencore just sold its U.S. business for a, a big check, and shareholders are going to receive a special dividend of five hundred and nine million pounds. Greencore, an Irish uh, food company. Uh, Headquartered in Dublin, but listed in the UK, and its its main activities now literally all based in the UK. Sandwiches, world's biggest sandwich maker, chilled foods, and that type of thing. And shareholders are going to do very well out of this, including Patrick Coveney, the CEO. They are absolutely, and people will recall earlier this year that it was facing a bit of turbulence. And at that point, Patrick Coveney said he was going to spend more time in the US, and uh, and and they appointed a new US divisional. This was his strategy. This was going to be the growth engine for the business going forward, wasn't it? The it US. was. Uh, and then they got this compelling offer, which wasn't expected uh, from a company called Hertzside Foods, and they, they ultimately sold the US business, uh, ending the company's foray and ending Patrick Coveney's strategy. Uh, in the US for over a billion dollars at the time. Uh, that was in September. So that effectively trimmed down the company significantly and that trimmed down company reported a 13% increase in pre-tax profits to £17.8 million. Pounds, yeah. Uh, now he's also warned that they might have to trim back on their selection of sandwiches uh, with Brexit. Uh, they mightn't be able to source some ingredients or as many uh, of that type of ingredient as they have done in the past and they're stockpiling uh, some some ingredients just in case. Yeah, already he's been saying, and up to now, they haven't been uh, getting too excited by Brexit, but 
this week was slightly more different, I guess, because they said that there has been a slight downturn uh, in volumes as a result of Brexit. However, I think Patrick Coveney has been pretty exercised about Brexit all along, and his brother, of course, is the Taunashta Minister for Foreign Affairs. He's right in the middle of those negotiations. Simon Coveney exercised, yes, but but uh, but haven't haven't warned uh, too much on, on on the impacts to business. But exercised, absolutely, yeah, yeah, sure, okay, Ryanair. Uh, it's setting up a new low-cost subsidiary in Poland. This is a low, low-cost, ultra-low-cost, I think they call it. What's behind that, Peter? Well, th- this seems to be a very, very smart move by the company to uh, ramp up this new subsidiary called Ryanair Sun. Uh, it, it sings like Ryanair, dances like Ryanair. It is Ryanair, but it's it's Ryanair Sun. Um, effectively, this allows it evade trade unions to, to a degree, uh, you know, it's just worth remembering that about a third of the value of Ryanair was wiped off after strike mm. uh, threats last year led it to recognise unions. And it's been a busy year on that front for Ryanair. So this new subsidiary means that staff are, are employed as uh, self-employed contractors. It this is in Poland. In Poland. So and is this a measure to try and get around having to pay, let's say, Western rates of pay to these Polish workers. Well, well, it 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 means it means a few things. I, I suppose that I'm not entirely clear if that is one of the aspects of it. But in, for example, Ryanair's uh, per passenger employee cost had gone higher than its uh, Eastern European rival Wizz Air um, as a result of these strike threats. So what this does is it it allows it move those employees from base to base. And that's been what has been Ryanair's attraction all this time because Ryanair has been nimble and has been able to move airplane and staff around at will uh, as as passengers required. Um, these new union issues it's been having has kind of put a spanner in the works, but Ryanair's son, well, uh, that kind of, that brings it back right. to the, the old... And the reaction in Poland? Uh, not great, uh, or, or not not good at all, really. I suppose the, uh, the first of all, the, the Polish authorities are launching an investigation into this. There is talk of legislation coming down the tracks there. So, look, it's one of those things we'll have to see how it pans out. Sure, uh, but um, you you must also remember Ryanair has its other subsidiary, uh, Loud Emotion, in in Austria. So it is making pushes into these subsidiaries, and and they may help us get it, get you know, get out from under the 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 union problems it's been having. Yeah, right, okay. Now, Dylan McGrath bringing a taste of Manhattan to Ballsbridge. Mm. This really has a has a whiff of the boom about it again. Uh, it's a three million investment in this new res- restaurant called Shelburne Social. Uh, and just some of the menu items I thought were interesting and worth reading out. They include a 45 euro potato dish, uh, a whole roasted duck for 110 euro and a 35 day aged ribeye for 129 euro. Uh, so look it has a mezzanine bar whatever that is it does um, the good times are back when is it open or when is it open or it opens this week uh, is it tomorrow right. uh, yeah it's open uh, this week have you made a booking <laughs> I couldn't get in <laughs> no no, I haven't made a booking yet no, <laughs> okay alright Peter Hamilton thank you as always for that wrap now Eamon Breen finance director of the Football Association of Ireland thank you for joining us it's been a busy couple of weeks for the Football Association of Ireland with Mick McCarthy's appointment as manager to replace Martin O'Neill who was uh, let go I think it's fair to say uh, just just before that and we had to draw then for Euro 2020 which was held in Dublin last weekend and Ireland have been given a well I suppose a stiff enough draw with Switzerland and with Denmark for the next Euros um, maybe just reflect on the Martin O'Neill, Mick McCarthy transition, uh, if you like. What was the FBI's thinking behind, uh, first of all, uh, the Martin O'Neill 
situation. Uh, was it a case that the FAI was worried, for example, that attendances were going to be impacted at matches in the future and therefore the income of the FAI was going to be impacted? Mm-hmm. I, I think it was uh, a kind of a bit of all of those put together, really. It was it was a, a really interesting couple of weeks and, and the speed at which it turned around was... was uh, quite extraordinary but it was very very good and I think the board took a view uh, a couple of attendances were, were struggling and uh, through discussion with, with Martin and Roy at the time it was both and it was it was mutual agreement to be honest with you where both were kind of going okay well let's let's try something new five years had gone past we'd had a difficult time frame since this time 12 months ago against Denmark and it was time for time for a bit of change and and board took a view took it took a bit of feedback a bit of insight through general football body stakeholders to, to understand is it time for a change and, and it was time for a change um, and Are you uh, suggesting that Martin O'Neill and, and Roy Keane volunteered to step aside for the good of the, Irish football? Your, your definition of voluntary and mutual agreement is, is up to you but it was there was no conflict in that kind of there was no heated arguments or anything mm. like that it was mutual agreement and both were kind of going okay well let's let's not have a row over it and let's move each way and kind of open it up for someone else. Five years in, in international management is, is a long period of time as well so it was kind of time to let, let's try again and we had the the challenge of Euro 2020 ahead of us and the, the not a requirement but not far off a requirement to, to qualify for that tournament to play you know, we're, we're hosting four games in Dublin and we want to be a key part of that we want our own fans to go to a home tournament so Ireland would play two group games and possibly a knockout game? Um, no knockout game. So we will host four games, three group games and the last 16 knockout game. Of the three group games, we'll play minimum two, maybe three. If we qualify. If also. we qualify and we're, we'll be in the same group as Spain. So the, if we're playing an away game, it'll be in Bilbao. Right, there so is a chance depending on the draw of the three games being at home. The last 16 game is the winners of a group and the runners up of a group. Neither groups being Ireland's group. Ireland's group. Was there a large compensation payment due to Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane? On uh, there, there was payments involved, all right. I won't go into the detail of it, um, but there was payments involved, as would be relatively standard within within football, football management and, and football players as well, where there's payments involved in it. But uh, none of which have had a significant detrimental impact on, on the association. We've, we have plans out as far as 2025, at least, and, and further, a little bit more vague, but further on assumptions. And none of this has had a a detrimental impact on the association and on our ability to continue to drive forward, invest in football and, and manage the place in a long-term basis. Yeah. Now, Martin O'Neill, a report suggested he was earning €1.9 million Euro a year and that he was, I think, the fourth, maybe fifth best-paid manager in world football behind uh, Joachim Lowe, uh, getting €3.8 million Euro with Germany. Didier Deschamps, three and a half with France. Uh, Fernando Santos, two and a half million with Portugal uh, and Martin O'Neill on a par thereabouts with Gareth Southgate of England. But if we look at Ronald Koeman of the Netherlands, we're talking about uh, €600,000 and Ryan Giggs with Wales, uh, €400,000. Wales have had a lot of success in the last uh, few years. Mick McCarthy uh, has reportedly come in a salary of €1.2 million. Why are Irish managers so well paid in an international context? I'd probably jump in straight away and the word reportedly comes into there's a very small amount of people that know the actual numbers that are being paid and no one we, we are not in position they're confidential agreements we're not in position to confirm whether the, the numbers are correct or not correct and we're in the difficult position where we can't counter when numbers are put out or they're reported at whatever scale they are and compared to other 
managers elsewhere. We can't confirm what other managers are, are elsewhere either. So it is interesting and a difficult position for us to say, okay, well, they are underpaid or overpaid in their comparison because we don't really know if they're underpaid or overpaid in their comparison. We're not in a position, as I said, of confidential agreements to say what they're paid or, or, or not paid. Yeah, okay, well, fine. But uh, So you, you don't want to give away the actual level, but um, are you saying that the reports have exaggerated how much they're uh, being paid? Literally won't comment on whether they're ups or downs. And we had the same questions, actually, in, in Mick McCarthy's... Uh, press conference recently, and we, we won't make a comment on the ups or downs of the, sc- the size of the package, uh, as is normal in any mm. employment contract. No one's going to say what exactly mm. what they're on. Well, these numbers have been floating around for a long time, so presumably if they were wildly inaccurate, somebody would have sought to correct them. I mean, Martin O'Neill has never been shy about uh, seeking to correct uh, incorrect reportage about himself. <laughs> on the pitch. Well, <laughs> with journalists often as well. It would usually about performances on the pitch or things like okay. that, never when it gets into personal confidential information. Yeah, okay. Um, but, I mean, Irish managers are well paid, aren't they? Even if he was earning half that amount, uh, he'd still well, be yeah, and well it's, paid. It's, it is a very competitive environment uh, as to get... It's a challenge when, when those positions come up. It's a challenge to get someone who is going to bring the performances on the pitch, someone who will put people, uh, bring fans to the stadium in an exciting uh, mode, someone who will bring a bit of enthusiasm and motivation to it. Uh, the, there, there's a very significant impact of performances on the pitch on... on uh, financial revenue, but also on kind of morale within football family within the country. You, you can see yourself the impact on the country as a whole at all levels when that team does well. Yeah, sure. Um, it, and, it and, the, and even people who perhaps aren't uh, soccer fans on a week to week basis uh, get unbelievable. You, you take our performance against against uh, Italy in in Lille or Germany at home or or any back in Holland in two thousand and one, like the whole country stops. Yeah, sure. And, and that starts to have knock-on effects on financial basis, on, on ability to, to invest, on our on our um, standing with mm. partners, with sponsors, things like that. So it, it is, it, although you, you're never going, I mean, we're not going to say how much managers are on, but it can have, it is a challenge to attract the right person to put the team in the sure. right position. Okay. Now, it's no secret that Dennis O'Brien was helping to fund the salaries of Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane, I think Giovanni Trapattoni uh, before them. Uh, is that still the case? Is Dennis O'Brien still providing financial assistance to the FAI? No. And how much did he provide over the years? That was nigh on twelve million across the across. Oh, the, I mean, it's across, a huge sum of money. It is, and it, like we are forever in in debt to him for for it. He he allowed us to go to the market on a big scale and bring in Giovanni Trapattoni, Marco Tardelli, um, and to continue that on through through Martin and Roy. And you see the impact it had on. Performances on the pitch, yes, they, they started to go down towards the end, but both had five-year stints in it, and, and that, can, that can happen in their stint. Um, but on our ability to to kind of bring football back to the top of the market, not not in in, in Ireland, but globally, uh, the scale it has, the the impact it has, well, how it, it works with our our business partners, our sponsors, our, our commercial um, revenue. Um, you bring significant uh, appointments to a, a commercial event or to a... Mm-hmm. Uh, a sponsor launch or two, even a sponsor meeting to agree it is, has a huge impact sure. on it. How many years did he fund? He was, that started in, when did, when did uh, Trapattoni start? It was in around the Trapattoni start and finished in 2016. In 2016, mm-hmm. right, okay. So what percentage of um, the salaries of those people would he have been paying? I mean, you said that the FAI mightn't have been able to do it otherwise. They mightn't have been able to uh, make those appointments. Mm-hmm. It was a, Good percentage of it. I won't say right. Was it a majority or a, a more than fifty percent or less than fifty? Had to be 
a good percentage. It's, well, can you give us a, a sense of uh, just whether it was a majority of the... Salaries? It wouldn't be far off the majority of it, yeah. Right. It, as in, it'd be slightly more than 50%, maybe. Right, okay. Let's talk about the FEI's overall finances. I mean, let's take 2018, uh, the mm-hmm. year we're, we're in. The economy is flying at the minute. I don't know if that has a ripple effect for you guys. It does for most businesses across the economy. What kind of income are you going to generate this year? We've the last the last two years we've had a record income of just we've had we had fifty million in twenty sixteen and just forty nine just under fifty million in in uh, twenty seventeen. We won't be far off that again in twenty eighteen, on the back of our of our uh, um, strong commercial revenues, our TV revenues, our um, football generated revenues around our summer soccer schools, our coach education courses, um, our partnerships with UEFA and FIFA and our, and our grant income we've received from them. We receive grant income from Sport Ireland. From, from mm. on, on How much comes government. from the government or government agencies? It's 2.7 million a year. We, we shout that out in our in our accounts on it. That's specifically for participation events, but that allows us to fund staff, to run participation courses, to have... Uh, we've development officers in all areas of the country. We've 58 development officers at the moment across all areas of the country. And, and in 2018, we announced... We, we now finally have a, a development officer in every county in the country. Okay. Of those 58, how many are women? I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I would put five or six on it if I, if I can start naming them out as I go across it. Sure. And how much money actually trickles down to grassroots, wherever it comes from, whatever source it comes from, how much actually goes to grassroots every year? When you get a, like on a direct basis, and we, we call it out in our accounts as, get, as well, we're anywhere between two and a half and three million. It goes direct to local clubs, to clubs that help us run summer soccer schools, clubs that uh, we, we fund or part fund for infrastructure projects. But then you also we also fund development officers that run um, mm. programs and projects that are within it. So it's not directly to the club, but it allows the club to to run events to hold competitions, to uh, develop football in the area. Um, and then we also uh, hugely assist local councils on their their social inclusion agendas to, like, we rerun programs called Late Night Leagues that mm. uh, we, we have evidence behind it, working with uh, Angarda Shikana, proving that when their Late Night Leagues are run in many areas across the country, crime rates drop significantly for that period of time. Okay. Now, there's been a huge focus recently because of what happened at the Ballon d'Or event uh, the other day and I- indeed for other reasons as well. Uh, a big focus on the amount of resources that's going towards women's football or girls' football where there is a huge growth, there's an explosion mm. in player numbers and so forth but they're very much at the lower end of the scale compared to men or boys' leagues uh, in terms of funding. In in a comparative, comparative basis, I'd agree on, on that basis when you look at on a pure player by player basis women's football is actually one of our nine pillars in our strategic focus at the moment we've we've a strategy from 2016 to 2020 and it is a huge growth area for us where over the last 3 to 4 years we have significantly increased the amount of investment at all levels from the women's national team down down as far as your your local um, girls clubs and leagues across the country um, as on a cold percentage basis, yes, the numbers the numbers are larger. But if you look at a participation basis, the number of boys playing in the sport is also larger. But the growth, the area of growth, is in women's and, and girls football across all areas. We're doing huge amounts of work with primary schools and secondary schools mm-hmm. to to give girls the opportunity to play everywhere. So it's an equal playing field in that in that basis. And across world football, women's football is is a significant growth area. 
What about uh, representation on the board? Because that's the highest level of governance yeah. within the Football Association of Ireland. How many board members and how many are women? There's 11 and there's one lady. Yeah, it's me. It's, it's pretty small. And I mean, the government are talking about introducing rules to force companies and organisations right across the mm. country to increase uh, representation. And given the increase in numbers anyway, mm. participation numbers, yeah. you would imagine um, that the FEI and other sporting bodies, I know you're not alone in this, I know other sporting oh, and bodies are And that's one where we've, uh, back in 2016, we kind of took the proactive approach of, of and it wasn't specific the, the appoint a woman to the board. It was have women's football represented on the board. So uh, in 2015, the association as a whole and the Women's Football Association, who were two different bodies at that point in time, decided to come together and bring the women's football under the kind of umbrella of the Football Association as a whole. They're now uh, integrated into a competitions department, into all departments within it. It's, it's another arm of football that we run at this stage. And in 2016, the chair of what previously was the Women's FAI took a position on the board. It was voted in in, in our, in our GM. Um, the, the, the chair is Neva Donahue at the moment. But that uh, the, the bigger part of that was the representation of women's football at, as you say yourself, the highest level. Mm. Right, OK. Let's um, just go back to your finances because a lot of people compare the FEI to the IRFU. And in 2007, the IRFU had turnover of €48 million. Euro. They're thereabouts with the FEI. The FEI was €45 million. Uh, that year. By 2017, the IRFU's turnover had grown 82% to €85 million. Euro while the FEIs have grown 9% to €49 million. Euro. Now, I know some of this is based on performances, so if the Irish rugby team wins a Grand Slam or Leinster win the European Cup, etc., there's extra uh, revenue generated. And similarly, if Ireland qualifies for the Euros at the World Cup, you get a boost in revenue that you wouldn't get otherwise. But none, nonetheless, there is a perception out there that the RFU is a progressive organisation that's going uh, in one direction, which is forward. It's, it's on the up. Uh, the provinces are all well run. The association is earning a lot of money. It does very well commercially and so forth. Whereas the FEI seems to be stuck in a bit of a rut. And I, I, I could definitely count you on that and say we are uh, a very, very well structured, very well run organisation, association across all areas. And if you look, if you go back as far as to 2001, we were 7, 8 million of euro, euro of income and it's grown significantly on that. Um, we have significant, strong, long-term income streams through our TV rights, through our commercial rights, through our, 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 our long-term ticketing and hospitality plans and, and commitments from sponsors to where we're going to in the long term. I would prefer the comparison. The comparison with rugby, it's a different sport. It's uh, different people involved in it across the country. Whereas what we compare ourselves, and I do it on a regular basis, against other football associations in, in the, the close enough area. So you're Northern Ireland, you're Scotland, you're Wales. And we do we are doing very, very well in, in numbers comparative to that. When you break it down, a number of people playing in those areas as well. And you break it down with the, the volume of, of income we generate and push back into the game, whether it be into grassroots programmes, whether it be into coach mm. education, referee education. So... Uh, I saw a lot of the reports during the week around the comparative numbers and, and things like that. I compare ourselves to how we're doing in, in a world football on a global scale rather than directly against. Sure, mind you, Scottish club football much stronger than the League of Ireland. Not as strong as it is in England, but much stronger than the League of Ireland with Celtic and Rangers, two big revenue generators. And if you look at Wales, uh, you've got Cardiff City playing in the Premier League. You've got Swansea. We're in the Premier League last season, now in the Championship. And they have two very well-resourced academies. We're moving in that position as well. We all agree our our, our league is uh, not as strong as the league in, in uh, the leagues in in and around England. Mm. 
But why is the prize money so poor in the League of Ireland? I don't know if it's poor. It's it's set at at a level it, it, around the income that that league can generate in the current. So how much how much commercial revenue will be generated around the League of Ireland? It, I won't go into specific details on it because it is within the numbers. But we've done a piece of work uh, through that the Declan Conway report. I don't know if you remember that back in 2014. That we've gone from a position where when we took the league back in 2007 or, or approximately, it, as a group, the, the the group of clubs combined were losing anywhere around six or seven million as a group, and now they are approximately break even. I mean, it depends on results in Europe and things like that, but in around break even. And we run the league on on a break even basis. So all of the income we generate on our sponsorship, on our um, where where we we receive grant income from UEFA to run leagues, goes back into the league to operate it to run the fixtures. And yet, there's barely a club in the league that doesn't gripe about uh, the lack of money and the lack of finance and the lack of support from the FAI. Lack of support, I'd challenge. Lack of finance, every club across the world will say, I need more finance, I need to do this, I need to do that. And we work on a daily basis with clubs to help them structure themselves better. On a support basis, um, You, what we don't hear reported is the positive work we do with the league, the positive work we do around their infrastructure, their underage programmes, their working around community programmes. Like, for example, we, we recruited four staff in, in 2017 to run, 2018, sorry, to run a programme called More Than a Club where we've put two staff in Bohemian and Cork to run community-based programmes and to to bring them closer to the community. I haven't seen that reported before, but that's us supporting the clubs to get back into the community. It's not directly giving prize money that, or, or, or reducing affiliation fees, but it is improving the, the club and bedding it more in the community to give those clubs the opportunity to grow themselves, okay, grow themselves just better. Two more issues, I mean, One, you mentioned uh, ticketing. Uh, let's talk about le- uh, premium seats. We know that the Vantage Club was launched over a, a decade ago and uh, it, it was a flop, um, charging up to €32,000 uh, for some of the seats uh, in the premium area when the RFU, I think, was charging a flat fee of €12,000. And what's the strategy around premium pricing now? So we've, we announced our strategy back in the AGM in, in, in August, just gone. And our strategy is we've done our market research. We've done like we we've been selling ten year tickets or, or long term tickets over the last number of years as well. And we're at a, a five thousand euro top price breaking for a ten year ticket and, and bringing it down for a, a five year package and, and a three year. How package. many sold? Um, we've when you go back as far as the original package is up to now, we've just short of three and a half thousand sold sold. Out of a total of there's ten thousand available 10, to sell. And then what we have a number of sponsors that have tickets in there as as part of their commitment that we work together on it. Yeah. Um, and we have we have other areas where some of our hospitality packages, so there's lounges that included in buying into the lounge of a premium ticket as well. So right. if you look at if you look at when when we have a game open, when you take our season ticket um, sales, which is over sixteen thousand, you take the Club Ireland tickets you take our sponsorship commitments and you take our football family commitments. There's nearly 30,000 tickets distributed before we even launch a game. And is it true that the FAI has been giving away thousands of uh, free tickets to clubs uh, around the country to try and put bums on seats for uh, recent it, matches? It, it's, for recent matches, it's, it's been a challenge. And giving away, we, we seldom give away tickets. The, we, we work with clubs on long-term commitments to clubs, so sometimes we can give clubs very well-discounted tickets and, 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 and entice them to come into games in groups, um, whether it be teams come in. My own club brought in 
well over a thousand um, mm. of, of members Lots of local of reports communities. in the media our own sports guys here saying they've heard stories of uh, clubs yeah, being I, given I, hundreds in some cases thousands of yeah, uh, tickets I, I being offered them reports like uh, uh, reports are, are we again cannot come we're not in a position where we're going to come out and say no that's not true we're, we're in that difficult position of of struggling to come out and counter everything that's reported out there Okay, and finally, the debt. Uh, the debt has been hanging over the yeah. association now for what about a decade or so since yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lansdowne Road, Aviva Stadium, as it is now, was redeveloped, mm. and there was a huge chunk of debt there. It's it's still there. The RFU have have dealt with it on on their side, but it, it still overhangs the FAI, and, and obviously is a drag on the amount of investment you can make uh, in the sport in this country. Uh, it's not so much of a drag as, as is is reported. We've been investing huge amounts in the game at the same time as managing our debt, and we've restructured our debt twice. At this, at this we've, at, as of today, we've twenty nine million still owed on the on the on the Aviva Stadium. But if you look at what that Aviva Stadium has given us, it, it is it was the best decision we made was to invest in that stadium. You take uh, the Europa League final. We had Euro twenty twenty coming around the corner. We have the ability on the back of that stadium to host club matches, we, um, and, and there is a huge demand for that, as you can see. Um, even on, on a, when we get back into financial numbers, if you look at the ability now we have for events, for commercial activities, for sponsors, and the simple thing of we now have 51,000 tickets to sell versus 36,000 that was in the previous stadium. When you look at that over the life of it, the income generation that that stadium has given us, has been immense compared to what it could have been without it. Mm-hmm. And and we will have that cleared with the board are committed to it and, and have been public on that committed. We'll have that cleared by the, the end of 2020 without us hurting hurting the game and, and holding back on investment in it. We've so that's two years that's away. So you're going to clear €29 million Euro in the space of two years. Yeah. That's €15 million Euro a year if you want to break down like that. So where, where's that money going to come from? That, that the board were presented and, and are very, very clear as to where that's coming from through... Long term, long term I- income that's that's already committed to us. We just need time to pass to, to get it, um, and that is the border. Comfortable. UEFA money for TV rights, for example. There's there's fun, funding from UEFA. There's there's future sponsorships. There's tenure tickets to to relaunch that, and and there we've presented the board, and, and I've done it myself. There is future income over the next short space of time that will provide money to fund that and fund significant investment in the game at the same time. Okay, Brian Kerr making the point last week that you didn't need to repay this step at the end of 2020, that you could actually use that money, funnel it into investments mm. in the sport in Ireland. Why not do it that way? It's still counted that we've continued. Like we, We've uh, invested nearly 200 million in the game at the same time as paying off the, this. That, like, football in Ireland is in, an, in a very, very good position and we continue to do it. The, the board have made the decision uh, to continue to, to repay the stadium and get to the position where we can maximise it. From it's, the stadium isn't going anywhere when that when that debt is paid. And off. I mean that's down from twenty nine. What was it at its peak? It was just short of seventy when it was at its peak. Short of seventy. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you feel that the FAI gets a bad rap? <laughs> People have Compared their opinions. To, you know, GA, have their opinions and their views, and, and we continue to to run. It's, uh, with the same goal of developing football and giving everyone the opportunity to develop football, people are allowed to have their opinions, and and, that, and that's that's no issue on our side at all. Okay, Eamon, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times about Brexit and Ireland's exchequer returns. Back in a few moments. 
Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free in iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, I'm joined in studio by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times to discuss the latest developments in Brexit and also record corporation tax receipts for the Exchequer in November. We might just start with those Exchequer returns, uh, Cliff. Sure. Uh, 2.7 billion euro in corporation tax in November. We're now on target to uh, well and truly top 10 billion euro for the very first time. And that's probably what, double what uh, the level we were taking in for a whole year in what, four or five years ago? Sure, sure. It's been an extraordinary growth in corporation tax over the last few years. What's behind it? Seems to be driven by two things. One is... The economy is growing strongly. Uh, companies are doing well. They're making more profits. They're paying more tax. That's the straightforward bit. Uh, the less straightforward bit is uh, that a lot of it appears to be due to multinational tax planning. Uh, specifically, uh, what's happened over the last few years is that uh, multinationals typically routed money through their Irish subsidiaries uh, to uh, often ending up in offshore tax havens like the Cayman Islands or whatever, where that money would be stored if you like, uh, and, and, and possibly repatriated to the US at a later date, although for as long as it was stored offshore, the companies didn't have to pay any tax. International tax changes, the, the American tax changes in particular, uh, mean companies can't do that anymore. And secondly, uh, the OECD and new rules that they are bringing in or that are bringing in under their auspices, if you like, are discouraging companies from operating out of tax havens at all. So they're moving more of their their activities and particularly their intellectual property assets into Ireland, leading to more they profits. Have operations of substance. Operations of substance anyway. So big companies employing thousands of people here typically have their IP, uh, their intellectual property, copyrights, patents and the like owned by another offshore company. Now it's being owned by the Irish subsidiary. It means more profits earned in Ireland, more profits declared in Ireland, uh, more tax paid in Ireland. So is this sustainable or is this a bit of a one-off? <sighs> the growth rate is certainly a one-off. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, I suppose for two reasons. One is we've seen we've seen extraordinary overall economic growth rates in the last few years in Ireland and internationally. And you know you'd have to reckon for one reason or another, some kind of slowdowns underway. But but more fundamentally, the move by American companies I think is a once-off move. So while we would hope that that tax base would remain in Ireland in the years to come, or most of it anyway. It's, it's hardly going to keep growing at the same rate because the assets will have moved or most of them will have moved. Uh, we just hope they stay here. And obviously, of course, Seamus Coffey is out today again at an Oireachtas Committee warning that, you know, OK, we can rely on some of this to continue, but we shouldn't be relying on it at all to continue. We certainly shouldn't be continuing relying on the growth rate. And we probably uh, shouldn't be spending it on day-to-day uh, items, which precisely. I, I, I think we probably are doing. Um, the thing that worries, uh, the thing is particularly that worries Seamus Coffey, and I think that has, uh, I, I expect worries Pascal Donahue as well, is the uh, overspending in health, the, the, the regularity of it now, another 700 million last year. Had he not got that big windfall from corporation tax, uh, which we understand the, the overpayment, of over a billion of it is, comes from a very small number of companies, one or two, 
uh, who declared a lot of extra harps in Ireland last year. Had he not got that, he would have faced a real conundrum on his budget. Mm. Some this year. Instead, as you say, probably heading towards a surplus. A budget surplus, yeah, which hadn't been predicted. It wasn't in the budget numbers. No, it wasn't. No, small deficit was in the numbers. Uh, the minister had promised to return to balance next year, not to surplus, but to balance but now he's he's in surplus this year so um, ahead of expectations in, in that regard but How should taxpayers feel about this I mean they might it's their money after all they might say well you know why don't we see some of it back True Tax cuts. Uh, True and a reasonable question and really what the way politics has driven it over the last couple of years is that pretty much all the extra money with the exception of a few hundred million each year has gone to extra spending so uh, the commitment in the programme for government was two to one for every two euros that goes on extra spending, uh, one would go on tax revenues. But the, the ratio last year, depending on exactly how you count it and what you count in the budget and what you count in other ways, probably more like 10 or 11 or 12 to one. So the vast bulk of the spare cash has gone to extra spending because I presume that's the way the government, f- where the government feels the public pressure is, uh, deliver better health services, invest more in infrastructure, uh, and, and so forth, education, okay. healthcare, whatever. Now, just when you think Brexit can't get any more momentous, ah. we've had another momentous week in Brexit terms in the UK with uh, Theresa May being defeated on a number of occasions uh, in the uh, in Westminster, yeah. uh, effectively, and the government being held in contempt. Quite extraordinary. Never happened before in the history of uh, the UK Parliament. Yeah, it is. It has been an extraordinary thing to watch. I think some of it, some of the drama perhaps has been taken out of it by the extraordinary complexity of the uh, procedure. What's going on, though? What what does it mean? Well, I suppose if we step back a bit, Theresa May is trying to get the UK Parliament to approve the withdrawal agreement that she negotiated with the EU. Um, There isn't, it would appear, and we won't find this out finally until next week, a majority to support that. Uh, There's a question that... Perhaps the Commons might vote narrowly against it this time. The deal might be amended slightly and they might vote for it again uh, next year, change their mind in January. Uh, But but, but who knows? And really, I I think why the situation is so confusing is that it's not so much a a question of for the deal and against the deal. There is certainly a majority against the deal, it appears, but those against the deal come from a whole lot of different groups. They're from Remain and Leave. Exactly. So there's those who want to remain. There's those who want a kind of a gentler Brexit uh, for the those UK to remain in the single market. There are those who want a second referendum. And there are those, Kieran, who want a no deal, who say, let's leave, let's tear it all up. Now, we won't pay the money we owe. We'll walk out next March and good luck. Exactly. And on that point, the, the perceived uh, wisdom was that uh, if this deal fell, if the British Parliament voted against it, whether it was once or twice, mm. that Article 50 has been triggered and the Brits were out, basically. Yeah. They would, there would be no deal. However, a ruling uh, from the European courts this week has changed the complexion of that. Yeah, two interesting things, I suppose, happened. That is, that is one. So the, the, the opinion in the European, the European Court of Justice, uh, which still has to be confirmed or otherwise by the full court, uh, so a small caveat there says that the UK can unilaterally withdraw its Article 50, so it can basically say it wants to stay, uh, and some discussion in the UK about whether they could withdraw Article 50 and serve it again to give themselves another two years. You know, that's, that, that would seem a bit of an odd thing to do, but we're in a very odd situation. But it has certainly given some hope, I suppose, some wind in the sails of the Remainers and the people looking for a second mm-hmm. referendum, because they can now say, look... Here we are here now. If we do vote to remain, here's the route, here's the route to do it. 
And the second interesting thing that happened, I suppose, from a procedural point of view was that there was an amendment uh, tabled and approved to the legislation which Theresa May has put before the Parliament, which basically gives the Parliament the right to suggest an alternative route if they uh, if they reject um, the um, the withdrawal agreement next week. So that has led put some people to say, look, there is no majority in the Commons for a no deal situation. Uh, therefore, it becomes less likely because if this vote, if this deal is voted down, then the Commons will come up with some other way forward, try and coalesce around whether it's a second vote or there's some suggestion it might involve staying in the single market like Norway does or whatever. That may be the case. Uh, the problem is, would be, I think, finding agreement behind some other route. And of course, behind that, again, we have the apparent desire of the Labour Party to do anything possible to, to topple Theresa May and cause, cause a general election. Uh, they're hedging their bets all over the place. They're slow to give commitments. They're talking out, of, it appears, out of both sides of their mouths. Um, so very uncertain parliamentary situation in the UK if this vote is... So if you're an Irish business leader looking at this and you're trying to make sense of it all and you're trying to figure out what's good for Ireland, yeah. um, what would you be telling them? What is good for Ireland in this scenario? The best case for Ireland is a second vote and a uh, and a remain conclusion, if you like. So the UK remaining... No guarantee of that. No, no guarantee at all. I was just going to say that. So big roll of the dice to have a second vote, really big roll of the dice. And what about a third referendum? Indeed. The Lisbon, if Remain like the wins treaty. the second one yes. uh, by a narrow margin, exactly. why not a third? Exactly. We're into, you're right. We're into a divisive territory and the opinion polls do show that public opinion, not only, in, not only opinion in the Commons, but public opinion in the UK remains deeply divided as well. Still a lot of, uh, a lot of support for Brexit, a lot of support for harder versions of Brexit, uh, the dial may have switched a little bit back towards the remainers in the last while, but not, you know, not conclusively. Yeah. So, so deal or no deal, uh, if if there isn't going to be a second referendum, deal or no deal, which is better for Ireland? Deal, absolutely. So so the next best, I guess the next best uh, outcome for Ireland would be uh, would be for the UK to, to, to approve this deal or something like it. Now, there is a small caveat to that, that if you were to assume that the deal was voted down... And that the Commons came forward with a with a, with a with an even softer version of Brexit than is in the withdrawal agreement, which which they could do, the Norway option that would be an okay outcome from the Irish point of view as well, and possibly even a bit a, a bit better than, than than what is in the withdrawal agreement itself. So some deal which keeps the UK aligned with the uh, EU trading bloc. That's that's what yeah. we want, and also of course solves the problem of the uh, the, the Irish border. All right, December 11th for the vote in Parliament. So we, we will know one way or another whether her withdrawal agreement is going to fly or not. Yeah, and talking to uh, our London editor, Dennis Staunton, he says the very important thing to watch is the extent to which it is defeated, assuming it is defeated. If it's 20 or 30 votes, for example, people may say, OK, maybe she could get this through a second time. Maybe the EU might give her something in the political declaration not change the, the agreement, but maybe give her something to sweeten the, th the, the, the pie a little bit. If it's 60, 70 votes against her or more, then really the deal is toast and she might be toast as well herself.
Okay. All right, Lyft is going to play out for some time to come, I suspect. And we'll probably have you on talking about Brexit for some time to come as well. Um, Anyway, that's it for this week from Inside Business. Before I go, I'd like to congratulate my colleagues on the Irish Times Business Desk, Fiona Redden, Laura Slattery and Peter Hamilton for winning awards at the annual Smurfit Business Journalism Awards this week. It was worthy recognition of their excellent work over the past year or so. And my thanks to our contributors, Eamon Breen, Cliff Taylor and Peter Hamilton. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.